Well, good morning. Well, let's go ahead. We got a lot of stuff to cover this morning, so let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we come before you, and I just pray that uh, you would quiet our hearts. Father, once again, as you tell us to listen, we would hear your word. We would listen with a heart to obey. Father, that your spirit would use the word in each one of us individually to judge our thoughts and intentions and to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we just thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that Jesus is the king. We thank you that he is coming back. And Lord, we thank you that one day we will be in the very presence of the king. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you have been reading along as we go, um, I think you'll find Isaiah's getting more and more exciting, more and more encouraging as we work our way through this. Uh, let me read you a couple of quotes just to set the context for what we're going to talk about. Um, the first one says, As Isaiah leads us along, increasingly he lifts our thoughts beyond our immediate problems to more distant, more luxurious certainties. He opened the, section, the second major section of this book with comfort, comfort my people. Now we read, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The prophetic horizon is broadening. And that's really true. The rest of the book, we're going to see some of the most detailed, most glorious revelations with respect to the coming Messiah. We're going to see that today. We're going to see Jesus Christ proclaimed clearly and we're going to see more and more detail as we work our way through the second servant song. Let me read you another quote. The servant of the Lord, set apart from birth and uniquely equipped for his mission, is a prophet. He is a voice of God on earth, and he demands a hearing from the entire world. But unlike Cyrus, the weapons of his warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. His word is a sharp sword. He himself is a polished arrow. He is a dread weapon in the hand of God, but he compels the attention of the world by God's improbable gospel strategies. Hidden until the time is right, he emerges in history to conquer not by military might or cultural imperialism, but by the force of truth. This is Jesus. And what we're going to see is, we're going to see what uh, Ortland was talking about as we start to work our way through the text. The next chapter focuses on Israel's greatest deliverer, not Cyrus, but Jesus Christ, God's servant. Chapters 49 through 57 will focus on the Messiah of Israel and the deliverer not just of Israel, but of the entire world. And by the way, that would include you. Cyrus was a significant figure in 40, chapters 40 through 48, but in 59 through 47, he's no longer in the picture. 
What's the mission of the servant? The mission is to save God's chosen people. And that does not include just Israel. But here's one of the things that was sort of a shock back then. We see, even though they should have known it, we see that this servant of the Lord is a deliverer not just of Israel, but of the entire world, of Israel and his church, and he's going to restore a sin-cursed world to its former glory. We're going to see the detail through these coming chapters of how he's going to do that. And you need to understand, if you're... Uh, Joe Bag of Bagels, right? A Jew living at the time of Isaiah, 700 years before the Messiah comes. Many of these things, even though, and we're going to see that they're proclaimed earlier in their scriptures, but they had not thought about that. They had not focused it. They were focused solely on themselves. He's the long-promised Savior of the world. Listen to Deuteronomy 18, right? Does Deuteronomy precede Isaiah? Yeah, by a long time. It says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. That's when they talk about the expected prophet, the one who is coming, the foretold one. This is the verse they're referring to. The Jews knew that Moses said, look, somebody's going to come. This prophet is going to come. He's not going to be like other prophets. And they were anticipating it. They knew that was a messianic reference. In Genesis 12, verse 3, which precedes even Deuteronomy, we read this. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now that's part of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Given in chapter 12. And in the Abrahamic covenant, God clearly states that from the seed of Abraham is going to come one who will save the whole world, all the families. And we read, for example, in Galatians 3.8, and it says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So I'm not misinterpreting this. Paul gives us the interpretation of that text. Paul says that, look, it was clear from the time of Abraham that Messiah's goal is to save not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth. So let's go ahead and open, open your Bibles to Isaiah 49, and let's look at this Savior. Let's look at this servant. As I mentioned, this is the second of four servant songs. And it starts in verse 1 this way. Listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he made my name to be remembered. He has set my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also set me as a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He has said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show forth 
my beautiful glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my might for nothing in vanity. But surely the justice due is me, uh, due to me is with Yahweh, and my reward is with my God. So now says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to return Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am glorified in the sight of Yahweh, and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should, uh, you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return? I will also give you as a light to, of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, even unto San Antonio. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised, I mean, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down, because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Man, there's a lot in that passage, right? And to be, to be honest, this, this was one of the toughest passages I've spent time on yet. I spent an awful lot of time and I seriously considered spending a week or two on just these first seven verses. There was a ton in here, but I do want to finish the book before I grow old and die of old age. So we're going we're gonna to move a little bit faster. But I hope, seriously, that you guys are reading these chapters before you come here. I want you to be familiar with what you're going to see because, you know, God speaks through the Holy Spirit to us in the Word. So the servant's calling, look at it in verses 1 through 3. First of all, I want you to note who is speaking here. The servant is speaking. Who is the servant? Jesus. Jesus himself is the speaker. And he says, listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Who is he addressing here? He's addressing the nations, right? He's addressing us. The servant of the Lord was set apart by birth and uniquely equipped for his mission. He is a prophet. He is the voice of God on earth and demands a hearing from the entire world. But he's not like Cyrus. He has different weapons that are divinely powerful. You can look at 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 where it talks about those weapons that are divinely uh, powerful for destroying strongholds, for destroying arguments. He is a sharp sword, a polished arrow. He's a dread weapon in the hand of God. And he compels the attention of the world by his gospel strategies. Revelation 1.16 puts it this way, And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth and his face 
was like a sh- the sun shining in its power. Later in chapter 19, we read this in verse 15. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he, tres- he treads the winepress of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Right? In uh, Ephesians 6, we read about the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Note that God did not raise him up from man's seed. It's important. If you look at the text, it specifically says he came from the body of his mother. His father, earthly father, is not addressed. Why? Because there is no earthly father. This is a clear reference to the fact that it, uh, to the virgin birth. He comes from his mother. Isaiah 7 verse 14 is already proclaimed this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. Right? We've already seen this. Isaiah has already proclaimed it. He's just reminding us. And he says, you are my servant Israel. The Israel of verse 3 is Messiah, the servant who embodies historic Israel. So when you see that in verse 3 where it says, he is my servant Israel, earlier we saw that Israel was called God's servant, but this time he is referring to Jesus and his link with Israel, but it is not Israel, it is Messiah, it is Jesus himself. He is the Israel in whom God will be glorified. We need to understand that you cannot make sense of the Old Testament apart from Christ. He's the one on whom all the lines converge, all the persons, events, institutions of the Old Testament, including the nation of Israel itself, find their meaning in Jesus Christ. Here in this thing, we see that Israel that Christ is represented by Israel because we read back in Genesis what was the mission of Israel. They were to bless all the families of the earth, right? That was their mission, and they didn't do that. But the one now who is referred to as Israel is going to fulfill that mission. He is the one who is being referred to here. And let's look at his mission in verses 4 through 7. The servant's first coming did not impress the world. So when we look at verse 4, it can be a little confusing. I have toiled in vain. I have spent my might for nothing. We might look and say, hey, wait a minute. Is he a failure? That's not what the text is saying. It's talking about the fact that in his first coming, what will be the response to him? They will reject him. That was part, and and by the way, hold short, because you're all sitting there going, well, wait till Isaiah 53, and you'll see that God intended that from the beginning. From the world standing, his mission was a failure. The servant was rejected by his nation. He was ultimately rejected by men and ultimately put on a cross and murdered. But we need to understand that is not the end of the story, and we're going to see that in the text. In Isaiah 52, for example, verse 14, it says, Just as many were appalled at you, 
my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. That is part of the uh, of servant song in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 actually starts in chapter 52. But we see he, he was marred, he was rejected. We see the same thing in the New Testament, John 1, starting in verse 9. There was a true light which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his did not receive him. So what we see here is a very clear reference to his first coming that he will be rejected by the nations. He was rejected by his own people, and then the Romans crucified him, really under the leadership of the Jews. And then they rejected him. But we see that Jesus Christ is the Savior of Israel and the nations. He is, in fact, the Savior of the world. There is no other. He was appointed, as uh, it says, as a light to the nations. Every wisdom and philosophy and moral code outside of Christ in the deep and uttermost darkness will be rendered void, and he himself will be the light of the world. Um, in fact, Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Right, We see that in John 8. In Zechariah 12, it puts it this way. I will pour out my Spirit on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. We see that one day he is going to be their savior. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am Yahweh. I, I have called you in righteousness. I will also take hold of you by my right hand and guard you. I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And we're going to see that same talk. He is given as a covenant to the people. Same thing. And he's going to be rejected by the nations. Right? We see that in verse 7. Isaiah 53, 3, And he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Right? They rejected him. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Notice that the nations will then bow down before him. Isaiah 52.15 says the same thing. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Now, we're going to get to this and spend considerable amount of time on that verse. But the bottom line is when he comes back, all the powerful leaders, all the rulers will shut their mouths. They're so used to spouting their own philosophies, their own wisdom, 
But when the Messiah comes back, they will shut their mouths. They despised him and killed him when he first came. They will bow down before him this time. Philippians 2, verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Right? We're all familiar with that verse. When he comes back, he's not a suffering servant. He is the ruler. And you need to understand, all those today in our culture who grieve you, you watch and you hear them shake their fist at God and say all these utterly blasphemous things. Right? Those who, who think it's good and healthy to slaughter innocent children and all the other kind of stuff we see with the sexual revolution who reject God to his face, they will all bow down. Right? You need to understand that. You will either bow down in glory and in um, repentance, like all believers have done, where we bow before him in repentance, or you will bow before him in judgment. Now, I recommend the first one. Okay, If there's questions in your mind, I recommend A, not B. You do not, you do not want to be there when he judges those who have rejected him. Right? The great white throne. All right. I want to look now at the servant's liberating victory. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. Thus says Yahweh, in an acceptable time I have answered you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. And I will guard you and give you a covenant. I will give you for a covenant for the people, of the people, to establish the land and to make them inherit the, des the desolate inheritance. Saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the road they will feed and their pasture will be all bare heights. They will no longer hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he, uh, for he who has compassion on them will guide them, and he will lead them to springs of water. I will set all my mountains as a road, and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from, above, from afar. Behold. These will come from the north and from the west and from the land of Shanim. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for Yahweh has comforted his people and he will have compassion on his afflicted. What we see here is how Christ, the Messiah, is going to come and he is going to deliver his people. He will restore Israel. And don't miss the wording we see here. First of all, God will fulfill his covenant promises on his timetable. Right? On his timetable. We need to keep that in mind. It is true eschatologically. What I mean by that, it is true prophetically when we look over history, right? Are you guys excited about his coming back? 
I hope so. Would you like that to be today? I would too. I would like it to be like now. Right? We all would. We all long to see him face to face, do we not? But notice he says he's going to do it in an acceptable time and on the day of salvation. God is working everything according to his timetable, not yours. And let me just give you some way to think about this in terms of your own personal lives. Right? When we look at trials and tribulations in our own lives, we sort of have a timetable we want God to answer our prayer, right? We sort of have a timetable when we would like God to do what we ask God to do, and God doesn't always do that, does he? No. I mean, you may, you may have a disease and you say, Lord, heal me. And he says, yeah, I am. I'm going to heal you by bringing you into my presence, right? Well, that's not, that's not my plan, Lord but it's his, but he will be faithful to you on the day of salvation, right? Favorable time. You know, it was was 700 years after this was written that the Messiah came as the servant. And we know it's going to be at least 2,700 plus years before he comes back as the ruling king, right? Let me read from you Isaiah 61. It talks about how when he comes, he's going to free the captives, right? You see that wording in there. He's going to be a covenant. He's going to help Israel. He's going to free the captive. Well, we see that again in Isaiah 61, verse 1. It says, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release of the captive and to free and freedom to prisoners. Who is that referring to? Who's that referring to? Christ. How do you know? How does he say so? We read in Luke when he's in the synagogue and they give him the scroll which probably was uh, LSB, by the way, but we're not sure. He turns to Isaiah 61 and reads the verse and part of the next verse that I just read to you. And then what does he say? This has been fulfilled in your presence. You are seeing the one, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed right now synagogue and when he says that and starts talking to him in the end what do they try and do yeah they try and throw him off a cliff that wasn't a good plan god sends jesus but israel wanted a political ruler not a savior because they didn't see their own sin and you really need to understand this when we look at this and we try and understand you know He did a lot of stuff. I'm really confused how they could not have recognized him as Messiah. What were they looking for? They were looking for political salvation. What did Jesus come to proclaim? Salvation for your souls. He came to free the prisoners. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time came, in other words, when God said so, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
John 9, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who, uh, those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, Are we blind too? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. What's his point? His point is, you think you don't need a Savior. They wanted a political Savior. Jesus is making the point, no, you need forgiveness of your sins. Right? You need somebody who's going to save you from your sins, and that's not what they were looking for. They wanted somebody who was going to liberate them from the Roman oppression. Jesus says this of them in Matthew 34, You blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. And he goes on through verse 28, telling them that on the outside you may look good, you do all the right things, you come to church, you know, you go to a really nice church. They got a great parking lot. You do all the right things. You look good. Got your Sabbath best on. But on the inside, the word he uses, you are, you are full of bo dead men's bones. Robbery and self-indulgence. You are a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That's his commentary. Israel did not think they needed forgiveness of sins. And they rejected their Messiah. Jesus said, look, I'll be a covenant of the people. We say the exact same thing in chapter 42, verse 6. The Lord saves and regathers Israel. He will come and he will fulfill all of the covenantal promises. Let me read you a quote. God is not ad-libbing his way along. He has a plan. He is not casual or off-handed in his dealing with us. He is a serious person who takes us seriously, but also knows how weak our faith is. He knows we need the strong assurance that he has given us himself to us by oath. This is the way of God. And now Isaiah shows us that Christ is himself God's covenant with weak people who have failed to keep their end of the bargain. Jesus said at his last supper with his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What he's talking about there is God made a covenant with Israel. And Israel could not fulfill their part of the covenant. They disobeyed. They rejected God. They adopted, adopted idols. But now he's going to give them a better covenant. And that better covenant is represented through the mediator. Look at Hebrews 6, 8 verse 6. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, referring to Jesus, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. What is that better covenant the writer of Hebrews is referring to? The new covenant. 
the new covenant. Hebrews 9, 15. For this reason, he is mediator of a new covenant. Um, in verse 17, for a covenant is only valid when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Jesus Christ died on the cross to enact the new covenant for the sake of Israel. And we just read in that quote that I gave you uh, the page before, that at the Lord's table, when he enacted the Lord's table, and he gave the cup, he said, what? This is the what in my blood? The new covenant. The new covenant is a promise to Israel. But God said Israel is ultimately to do what? Bless the nations. And that blessing comes through the Messiah and, and the Lord's table. The, right before he goes to the cross, Jesus says, look, I am now going to apply the new covenant to the church through my own blood. By the way, how will the new covenant be applied to Israel? Same way, through the blood of Jesus. He will shelter and protect Israel. Look in verses 9 and 10. The Messiah, he, he will change from captivity and oppression to contentment and prosperity. They'll be well-fed, protected, watered for their sheep. Revelation 7, verse 16 puts it this way, They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them and guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who is that verse referring to? Who is going to be the lamb in the center? The shepherd who will do that? Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And he will regather Israel. Notice in verses 11 and 12, they're going to come from afar. They're going to be gathered from a worldwide exile. Even places like uh, Sinim, which is probably an early reference to China. He's going to call all his Jewish believers from everywhere, and he's going to straighten the path out for them. And he's going to call them from the north and the south. He's going to call them from the east and the west. And by the way, is this the first time they've heard this? No. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. If those of you who are banished are at the ends of the sky... From there, Yahweh, your God, will gather you, and from there, he will take you back. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. Moses predicted this would happen, right? This is consistent, and I want you to see that. I want you to see how consistent all of this is throughout Scripture, going all the way back to Genesis, going all the way to the book of Revelation. Ezekiel 11 says it this way, in verse 17, Therefore, say, Thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. That's what this Messiah is going to do. And notice in verse 13, verse 13 is a, is a spectacular verse. We could easily spend a week or two on just verse 13. Let me read it again for you. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth in joyful shouting, O mountains. 
for Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. He is telling Israel to rejoice. He says he will have his compassion on his people. Is Israel his people? Yes. A little more enthusiasm next time, okay? Okay, here's another one. Hopefully you'll get it right. Are we his people? Yes. There you go. That was good. I like that one. You know, the New Testament constantly tells us to rejoice. We're told to rejoice in the midst of trials, are we not? Right? See, that's one of the things that the world ought to look at us, and they ought to go, there is something different about him or her. Because I'll tell you, if there's one thing that I think we can all agree on, you don't see a whole lot of joy in the world, do you? I mean, I mean, if you put on the news, you got about five minutes and you're depressed and want to go, you know, like, go take a nap or something, right? You don't see a lot of joyful rejoicing in the news these days, do you? The leading cause of death in young people is suicide. And then when you add that with the number of overdoses, it's more than anything else. I mean, it's, it's almost all of it is suicide and drug stuff. Used to be things like accidents and stuff like that. Now, people who are supposed to be at the best time of their lives, like they're not old and creaky and all that other stuff like some of us are, and they're killing themselves. We live in a depressed world. Look around. I mean, I'm serious. We really do. But what are we told here? What does it say? Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth in joyful shouting, for Yahweh has comforted his people. That includes Israel. It includes you. Let me just read you Romans 8, 19. You've heard this before. For the anxious longing for the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery, from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, Jesus is going to come. He's going to create. He's going to set all creation right. Right? Fire ants won't bite you anymore, right? My wife won't be afraid of snakes anymore. She may have her own pet snake. I don't know, right? Lions won't eat you anymore. You can go up and pet them. They won't bite. Then they'll go out and eat grass when they're done. All of creation. No more pain, no more suffering. Revelation 12.12 12 says this, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time left. But I want you to notice that's in the Revelation, there's going to be some bad stuff, but he says rejoice, right? Heavens, we're, we're to rejoice, because in the end, what is God doing? 
at the acceptable time in the day of salvation, God is working as salvation for Israel and God is working as salvation for you. Right? Now, the salvation of Israel is a future event. Has not happened yet. That does not mean Jews aren't being saved. They are. Right? But not the nation as a whole. Israel is not being saved. Many Jews are being saved out of that, though. But there will come a day when they will all be saved. And then we're going to, I want you to look at verses 14 through chapter 50, verse 3. Again, we understand that chapter divisions and stuff like that weren't in the original language, right? So um, we're going to, uh, chapter 50, verses 1 through 3 really belong to this argument. Let me read it for you. But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her infant and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders hurry, your destroyers and devastating devastators will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you. As I live, declares Yahweh, you will surely put on, you will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them as on a bride. For your devastated and desolate places and for your, and your destroyed land surely now will too be cramped for the inhabitants. And those who swallow you will be far away. The children of whom you were bereaved will say in your ears, The place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne these for me? Indeed, I have been bereaved of my children. I am barren, an exile, and a wanderer. Who has reared these? Behold, I remain alone. From where did these come? Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and make high my standard to the peoples. And they will bring your sons in their bosoms and your daughters will be lifted up on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their princes your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who hope in me will not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of the righteous be granted escape? Surely, thus says Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away and the prey of the tyrant will be granted escape. For I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your sons. I will feed those who mistreat you with their own flesh. They will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and the Redeemer and your Redeemer and the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says Yahweh, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? On which my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities. 
and for your transgression your mother was sent away. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, there was none to answer. Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or I have no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I close the heavens with blackness and make a sackcloth their covering. Whoa. Just listen to the tone of Yahweh as he speaks. First of all, I want you to notice Israel's despair in verse 14. What a letdown. The prophet had just told us that nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ. But we look around our problems and mumble. No, the Lord has forsaken me, he has forgotten me. The people of God, even though they're being carried in the everlasting arms toward heaven, can be gloomy, sour, impossible to please. How hard is it for some Christians to be happy? Shouldn't the good news make us smile? That's Ortland's commentary on this. They start off, and I want you to notice how they lament. They start off by saying, Who Yahweh has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Right, that's their thing. Psalm 77, verse 7. Will the Lord reject evermore? Will he not be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? As his word ended from generation to generation, has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he, in his anger, shut up his compassion? That's the question they're asking. Where are you, Lord? Aren't you seeing? But did he not just deliver them from Babylon? Yes, he did by Cyrus. Right? They forget quickly. And they lament. Now I want you to look at the Lord's response. First of all, God reminds them of who they are and who he is. God cannot forget his chosen ones. He asks if a mother can forget her own child. And let us remember that the love that a mother has for a child is probably one of the strongest bonds I think exists on earth. Is that not true? Right? I remember when my kids were born and the way my wife held them and fed them. I mean, it, it's an amazing thing to see. And i got to tell you, one of the things that brings me the most joy in this church is I love to watch all the kids in this church just run around and have fun. And I see them being loved and cared for by their parents, which, by the way, is not the standard anymore. Right? And I see how their lives reflect that. You know, I mean, you should, you should just, when you go out there between the service, just watch. It should bring joy to you. I mean, you'll see all these puddles, little kids jumping in them, and mom's going, no, don't do that. <laughs> the imagery of verse 16 suggests that God is spreading out his hands before us so that we can see our very names engraved on his hands. Why is he saying that phrase? He spreads out his hands, Right? It's a reminder, it, it is a foreshadowing of Christ. He spread out his hands, and what did they do? They put nails through them. But on his hands, your name is written. Israel's name is written, and your name is written. 
Malachi 3.17, For they will be mine, says Yahweh of hosts. On that day I will prepare my own treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son and serves him. Hosea 1, verse 10, Yet the number of the people of sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and that will be uh, that in that place where he said, you are, you are not my people, I will say, you are sons of the living God. And what we note here is God is going to restore, the in verses 17 and 18, the destroyers will be, repart, will be destroyed, they'll, they'll depart, and the builders will come, and Israel is described as the jewels on a bride's neck during a wedding. Now you need to understand that's a cultural thing, right? So jewelry back then was one of the ways that they would store and keep wealth, right? They didn't have 401ks, they couldn't go to the credit union, right? So when you think about how you would gain wealth, one of the ways was jewelry, right? That was something you could keep that had wealth. And a bride would wear the best she had, and she would adorn herself for that. And that's the imagery he's using. He's saying, Israel, you'll be like that to me. Um, remember, um, oh, and, and note in verses 19 through 21, they'll be so fruitful that they're going to say, look, there's no more space. I need more space. Right? Through the ages, Israel's been persecuted. Their children have been murdered. They have been murdered. Right? You can just, oh, I don't know, is there a recent historical example from, let's say, two weeks ago or three weeks ago? Yeah, right? Thousands killed, slaughtered. But what we see here in 19 through 21 is, is they're going to be fruitful. They won't be barren anymore. And there's going to be so many of them that they're going to be going, hey, I need more space. You need to remember this. During the tribulation, two-thirds of all the Jews will die. One-third of those will live, and now God is rebuilding that one-third into a nation. Let me read you from Zechariah 13, starting in verse 8. And it will be in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and breathe their last. But the third will be left, and I will bring the third through the fire and refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and will call. they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, you are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. So what he's talking about here is, is during the tribulation, two-thirds of all Jews will be slaughtered. It says right here, they will breathe their last. But God is going to take that last third, and he's going to refine them. And when he pours out the new covenant on them, they will say, Yahweh is my God. And we're going to read, by the way, in just a little bit, a couple of weeks, we're going to read the exact words they're going to use when they call on Yahweh. It's really exciting. Then I want you to notice the triumphant Lord in verses 22 through 26. God is going to describe his powerful delivery and his subjugation of the nation. The wording is really quite stark, is it not? First of all, he's going to lift up his standard. 
all the world will know who God is and they will see the king ruling in Jerusalem. Jesus is the standard. Right? Jesus is the standard. He will stand up and he will rule and all the nations will see him. And he says, bring your sons, your daughters. It's a literal fulfillment for the remnant of Israel. By the way, you'll be there for this. You personally, by name, will be there for this. You will see this. You will be with him when he sets himself up as a standard in Jerusalem. You can get that from Revelation 19. I'll let you read that and figure that out. But Isaiah 60 verse 4 says, Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried on the nurse's hips. Isaiah 66 verse 20, Then they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as grain offering to Yahweh on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels to the holy mountain of Jerusalem, says Yahweh. God will bring them that third that is left. God will bring them in victory and their enemies will be destroyed. Look at verses 25 and 26. They're going to flee, feed on their own flesh. They're going to drink their own blood. That's metaphoric language talking about how God is going to utterly destroy them. Right, utterly destroy them. Look at Revel. You want to get more detail on that? Would you like more detail? Okay, since you asked. Revelation 16, starting in verse 5. This is the third bowl judgment. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who is and who was, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. These people who've been persecuting God's people, ridiculing God's people, here in Revelation we're seeing those who are aligned with the Antichrist, who will attack God's people, not just Jews, by the way, but there will be millions of Gentiles in the tribulation who will come to the Lord. And the Antichrist will try and kill them too. But God, it says here, He has given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Judgment is coming. Do not be discouraged by the evil you see all around you. And I'll tell you, it is discouraging. It is. It discourages me. It grieves me when I hear people talk about God this way. And, and they don't, in some cases, don't even realize it. Right? A lot of these people... I think I mentioned this last week. We have a thing from Texas, Right to Life. There's a picture of this woman. And, and I keep it and I look at it. It kind of just reminds me. And she's got a sign that says, um, free abortion, on demand, without any reason, without apology. Something like that. just grieves me that somebody could say that. The natural love that a mother has for a child and instead they want to slaughter them. But God says they will drink their own blood. They deserve it. And then let's go to chapter 50 and pick it up in verse 1. 
It's still the same argument. This is the powerful Lord. Thus says Yahweh, Where is the certificate of a divorce by which I sent your mother away? Or to which my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you are sold for your iniquities, and in your transgressions your mother was sent away. And there was no man when I came, when I called. Why was there none to answer my hand? Is my hand so short that I cannot ransom? Or have no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water. They die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. This is a continuation of the argument. The root behind all other manifestations of sin, this is Luther talking, Martin Luther, commenting on this passage. And he says, the root of all other manifestations of sin is compulsive unbelief. Our voluntary darkness concerning God, ourselves, his relationship to the fallen world, and his redemptive purpose. I thought that is a really great quote. Right? It's the manna, it's sin is compulsive unbelief. They choose not to believe. Romans 1 tells us they know, right? Romans 1 tells us they know. There is no such thing as an atheist. They may say that. I think I told you guys years ago at the academy, I had a philosophy professor. And um, I won't tell you the whole story, but bottom line is he, he really hated Christians. He would attack us in class all the time. So I wrote my paper on why God is just to send men to hell. And uh, you had to write a paper. It was a third-year grade. He said, you can't write that. It's unsupportable. I said, well, I don't think so. And he goes, if you do, you're going to get an F. I'm telling you up. And I said, well, okay. I would still like to write on that. So I did. Probably a stupid thing to do, but I did. So at the end of the at the end when he handed them out at the end of the semester, he gave me my paper. He in fact he gave everybody's else out but mine. He said, I want to talk to you afterwards. And he goes, Look, I gave you a C on this, but really I should have given you an F. But your logic and your support and all those rules of logic and all that stuff we learned. He goes, You did that well, so I'm gonna give you a C, but you should have got an F. Well, the day before, by God's providence, I'd read an Ecclesiastes that God puts eternity on all men's hearts. And um, that wasn't an accident. I read that the day before. And I looked at him and I said, you know, sir, you sit here and you act like you don't believe in God. But I know, I know because scripture tells me that alone in the dark, when you're by yourself, you know he exists. And, and you ever catch your kids, right? Stealing chocolates. No, I don't. Have, I didn't do that. And there's chocolate all over their face, right? No, I didn't do it, right? You've all been there, moms. That's what he looked like. He had that I'm busted look on my face, right? He did. You should have seen the look on his face. He had no answer. He didn't say a word to me. Because I knew he knew, and he knew I knew he knew. <laughs> so the first thing we see in this passage is God was not at fault for their divorce, right? Israel wants to blame God, and God says, no, it wasn't me. God is challenging his exiled people to think. They feel abandoned. And yes, they had been disciplined, but not abandoned. 
So God says, okay, pull out the divorce certificate. I want to see it. And he reminds them that it was their sin that caused the separation. It was their sin. He says, look, it wasn't creditors. I didn't sell you for credit. I didn't sell you for any other reason. But your iniquities, you were sold for your iniquities. And then he presses the point. Let me read you what one commentator said. He said, in many, uh, in his many approaches to his people and his many offers of help, why was there no clear glad or glad answer from them? When his outstretched hand provided everything helpful, relevant, and encouraging, why was his hand not grasped? Is the hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or, or, uh, or has he no power to deliver? Is he the powerful Lord? If we aren't experiencing that power, it's because of weakness or reluctance in him. God is both ready and willing to meet us with saving power if only we'll stop hanging back in sullen reluctance and haughty fault-finding and step forward in eagerness and repentance and faith. See, God says, my hand is not too short that I cannot save, but you will not take it. And I just thought a verse I should have put in here, but I didn't. Um, so Jesus, if you remember, in the Olivet Discourse, as he's going into Jerusalem, goes, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I would that you would come, but you would not. Right? Jesus weeps because he has offered salvation to the Jews, and what did they do? They rejected him. God is powerful enough to save everyone. His hand... Um, is not too short that he cannot ransom. He has the power to deliver. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is divinely powerful. That's why it's the only thing, by the way, that saves. You can talk to your friends about their position on this political thing or that, about abortion or you know, uh, transvestism or whatever you want, but that will not save them. The only thing, you can use that as a transition, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans eleven twenty six, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. See, the church is God's chosen people and are all saved. If you are a real believer, you are part of the church, and you are God's chosen people, and He has saved you. And then we read here in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. You know, it's interesting to ask why they rejected God, why when they saw the miracles, they knew you know, it's interesting, we read in the Gospels in John, that after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? that, by the way, was quite the scene. The Word got out. Right? The Word got out. It was irrefutable. How long had Lazarus been in the grave? Yeah, three days. He stunk. 
When they opened the grave, it stunk. Lazarus had been decaying for three days. His body was in the grave. And Jesus walks up and he says what? Lazarus, come forth. By the way, do you know why he had to say to Lazarus, come forth? Because if he would have just said, come forth, all the graves would have been emptied at once. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Right? The Jews, the leaders knew about it. And what was their response? They needed to kill Lazarus also. See, it wasn't that they didn't know. They hadn't heard about it. That's not. They knew and they wanted to kill Lazarus because, oh, by the way, he just got raised from the dead. Kind of a dumb response. But we need to understand that is every human's heart. That was your heart before God turned a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. So let's think briefly about some implications. First of all, I want you to notice how the chapter starts. Listen to me. God speaks. God is not silent. He speaks. Just John 1, 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you understand that God speaks, and this book is not a book, there is a, a divine aspect of this book. Right? There is, I, I don't mean the book, the pages, the leather, um, any of that. What I'm saying is the words are the very words of God. And it says, in the beginning was with the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It represents God. I've told you this a million times. How do you behold God? You behold Him in the Word. See, God said, you can't make an image of me, but I am going to give you myself revealed, and I'm going to do it in this book. He speaks. Revelation 3.20 is talking about the church that's not a church, Laodicea. And in the letters to the churches, this is the last one. And instead of being in it, Jesus is now outside the door. That's how we know there are no Christians in this church. It's, a de it's not a church. It's a building full of dead people. And in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He's knocking and he says, You need to hear my voice. I will speak to you. Romans 1.16, again, it is the power, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Right? God speaks. It's divinely powerful. And the next thing I just remind you, as we've seen here, Israel thought God had forsaken them. Has God forsaken Israel? No. Israel may think that now. Has God forsaken Israel today? No. Are you sure? Positive? Yeah, because you just read chapter 49, where God says, you are a child to me. Can a mother forget her child? Of course not. I love you more than that, Israel. 
In the midst of our deepest despair, we must never forget that God is still with us. He will never forsake us, and His love will never be diminished. You understand that? That's true for Israel. It's true for you. Right? Some of you are going through trials. Some of you have things in your life you don't like. Some of us are getting older. Right? You guys over there, young folks, you don't know what we're talking about. but It's true. But we need to remember in the midst of whatever trial God brings us, He will never desert you. Let me read you from Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dread of them, for Yahweh your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Kind of reminds you of Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. By the way, that verse is quoted in Hebrews 13, verse 5, when it says, Make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money. Be content with all that you have, for he himself says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that verse from Deuteronomy is quoted in Hebrews. It still applies. He will never forsake you. Psalm 94, for Yahweh will not abandon his people nor forsake his inheritance. Yahweh will not do that. Romans 8.35, what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? What's the answer to the question? No. He doesn't say we won't face affliction, turmoil, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or the sword. But he says in the midst of it, God will not forsake you. And then the third thing just that we should draw from this is trust in God for what we do not understand. Right? God has revealed his overall plan. We see it. If you don't believe me, read the book of Revelation. Go through the rest of Isaiah with us. You'll see his plan. But we don't know everything. We're not prophets. We don't know the timetable. When is Jesus coming? I'm hoping before church starts, but we don't know. And we need to be careful because sometimes what we don't know discourages us. Now let's make it more personal, right? What if, what if you find out you have some disease or you lose your job or something else horrible happens in your life? We have some folks in our class who recently lost a loved one. We need to understand that we don't know why and how and all the details behind God does what he does. Remember Job? Right? Was Job a righteous man? And his friends come and they basically, kind of summary of the quick book, they say, you're going through all this because you're not righteous because God would never punish the righteous. That's pretty much their argument. And what's Job's one sin? What's the one thing Job does wrong? Why me? Yes, why me? I'm not unrighteous. I didn't do that. I'm not what you say. Why me? And then if you remember, I think it's about chapter 38, God answers Job's question. And Job wished he didn't. Right? Were you there when? Were you there? Did you do this? Did you? And he just beats up Job for like four chapters. Right, three or four chapters. Were you there when? Did you hang the stars? Do you know them all by name? 
what's Job's answer? I repent in dust and ashes. I hadn't seen you before, but now I see you and I repent in dust and ashes. See, we don't know all that you did. God does not promise that we'll understand all the details of what he's doing. He has told us his redemptive plan. He is fulfilling that in the world today. Just as God delivered Israel as they passed through the Red Sea, he has delivered us from our sins, which is a greater miracle than the Red Sea. You understand that? You want to see a miracle? God took a heart of stone and he made it a heart of flesh. That's a miracle. And everybody in this room who's a believer has experienced that. Proverbs 3.5, trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Some things you can figure out and some you can't. I can tell you Jesus is coming again. I can tell you he will rapture you. I can tell you you will stand before him and see him face to face. I can tell you you will experience intimate fellowship with the Trinity. But I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I haven't been told. But I don't get discouraged by that. Let me give you one verse and we'll close with this. Jeremiah 9, starting in verse 23. Thus says Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, nor a rich man boast in his riches, but limb him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. When I'm in the midst of the trial and I don't understand why, what I do understand is that Yahweh shows loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, and I delight in all these things. Right? Yahweh will never forsake you. Jesus will never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the incredible power of your word. Father, I thank you for letting us behold Jesus, your servant, in the word. We behold you in the word. We see your justice. We see your might, your perfection, your salvation. And Lord, we bow down before you in adoration, in thanksgiving, in worship. May your name be praised every day in our lives, forever and ever. Amen.